Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, so I can tell about all you do. Psalm 73, 28. As I was praying about this message, I was sitting in my office and I was saying, Lord, what is it uh, you want me to say? I mean, anytime you're, you know, you're going to preach or teach, you might want to preach and teach what God wants you to preach and teach. I mean, it does no good for a preacher to stand up and not uh, preach or teach whatever God's laid on his heart. And as I was praying, God brought me back to this idea of his ever-presence, uh, ever-present nature, uh, There's a $20 theological word for that. It's called omnipresence, uh, which essentially means that God is ever-present. And I'm most thankful for that attribute of God. Because the truth is, we're never alone. We're never without being in God's presence. He's always with us. He's never not with us. And the truth is, walking the disciples' journey and just doing life can sometimes be so discouraging and so difficult that we are overcome with feelings of loneliness and despair. And when we are overcome with those things, what do we do? How do we respond? Well, it does us a lot of good to remember that God is always with us through the presence of the Holy Spirit who is with us and us and upon us. It does us good to remember that his presence is our good. And it does us good to remember that regardless of where we're at, he's with us. In Psalm 139, David talks about this very idea. In fact, beginning in verse 7, he says, Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle in the western limits... Even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely, the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night. Lord, even the darkness is not dark to you. For the night shines like the day. Darkness and night are alike to you. God is everywhere in every moment. And the question then becomes, what do we find in his presence? Well, there are three things that I want to highlight today, and there are certainly more, but three things in particular. Three things that we find in God's presence. And the first thing we find is conviction. Now, this is hardly ever pleasant. In fact, I have met nobody who ever says, I just really enjoy being convicted of sin. I mean, I've not met anybody. It's not pleasant to me. But conviction is always for our good. In fact, in Psalm 139, beginning in the first six verses, we read, Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I stand up. You observe my thoughts from far away. By the way, let me just take an aside here. When you're praying... 
And you say, oh, I can't tell that to God. He already knows. He knows your thoughts from afar. Go ahead and tell him. God desires integrity within the inner self, David tells us in Psalm 51. Go ahead and be honest with God in your prayer. If you're heartbroken, tell God. If you're upset at God, tell God. He can take it. God will let you sit there whining and complain, and when you're done, he'll say, okay. So let me tell you what's actually going on. Here's what you don't understand. Be honest with God. Continuing past verse 2, verse 3, you observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. First thing we find is conviction. Understand, God knows who we are better than we know ourselves. God knows the sin in our life that we are both aware of and unaware of. And sin is a sneaky monkey. It is a sneaky monkey. It'll creep in and it'll take hold before you even know what's going on. I've told our students this and they're probably thinking, oh, he's about to talk about his cat again. Yes, I am. A couple months ago, a cat showed up at my house and uh, I made the mistake of giving it food and water and so then it adopted me. And, uh, and it's just been hanging out and been taking care of it. And I've really grown fond of the cat. I, you know, my dog has grown fond of it too, surprisingly. Uh, but the cat's name is Cat, and there's a reason behind that. Uh, but Cat is cute, he is fluffy, he is orange, and I'm pretty sure he's a freeloader off of the neighbors. But that's another conversation for another time. He wants to be pet, he wants to be held, he wants attention, and he never gets mad at you. I mean, seriously, you can pet that cat and rub his belly as much as you want. He will never paw at you. During the snowstorm, I'm sitting on my couch, and I'm on a chapter in a book. And if animals could scream bloody murder, bloody murder was being screamed from my garage. And the dog looked at me, and I looked at the dog as though, you know, we could have a conversation. And the dog starts walking toward the garage, and I follow the dog. And I walk out of, into the garage, and guess what the cat has? A bird. And it's not dead. And so I rescue the bird, and the bird flies off, and the bird's happy, and everything's copacetic. Fast forward to the end of the week. It's after church on a Sunday. I walk into my garage, and now there's a squirrel, and it is dead. Sin is a lot like my cat. Given enough time, it will pounce on you, and it'll try to take your very life. In fact, God says that of sin in Genesis. He says sin crouches at the door, waiting to pounce. Peter continued that analogy in his epistles when he said the devil is like a roaring lion roaming around looking for whom he may devour. We need God's conviction. Sometimes we're just blind to the fact we have sin in our life. This past week as I've been working on this message, 
And as our pastor has been preaching on idolatry, the Lord's convicted me of some things. And I caught myself. I caught myself sitting in my office, reading my Bible and praying, not for preparation for anything, but for myself. And I caught myself justifying my sin before God. Truth is, we do that all the time. And I said, wait a minute, Lord, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh Uh-uh. You're righteous. You're perfect. You're trustworthy. There is no justification. These are good things in my life, but Lord, if you're saying I need to put these things on the back burner, then by golly God, I'll put them on the back burner. They were taking my attention, my, my heart's focus and my mind's attention off of the Lord Jesus. God said, you need to put them on the back burner. We need God's conviction. It's, it's good that we are convicted. Number one, it's also a sign that we belong to God. Parents, you discipline your children because you love them. If you're outside and you're working in the yard one day and your child's out there and you say, all right, honey, you can play anywhere in this yard that you want, but if you go past that ditch in the front yard, you're coming inside. No ifs, ands, or buts. And let's say you walk inside, you're going to get a glass of sweet tea or something, and you come outside and you saw your daughter go and touch her foot on that road when you were inside. Did she disobey you? Yes, she did. As a loving parent, you would be totally right and justified to say, come on, honey, I saw what you did. You're calling her out on her sin, and that is right, it is good, it is loving, and God does the same for us. We need God's conviction. Is it ever fun and pleasant when it's happening? No, but understand this, sin is always burdensome. In fact, listen to this before we go over to Psalm 38. David says this, search me, and this is in verse 23 and 24, Psalm 139. Search me, God, know my heart, test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Conviction is meant to lead us into the way everlasting. Sin will kill us. God says, I want you to have the very best. I want you to have my best. I want you to be in my presence. So I'm going to convict you because I love you in order that you might walk the way of the everlasting. When we're convicted, it goes a lot easier when we just say, yes, Lord, you're right. But understand that sin is burdensome. In fact, turn over to Psalm 38. Uh, David talks about this beginning in verse 3. David says, There is no soundness in my body because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have flooded over my head. They are a burden too heavy for me to bear. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. Listen, sin is ultimately foolishness. Solomon goes back to that time and time again in the book of Ecclesiastes and in the book of Proverbs. He goes back to that sin is foolishness. I am bent over and I'm brought very low. Verse 6, all day long I go around in mourning for my insides are full of burning pain and there is no soundness in my body. I am faint and severely crushed. I groan because of the anguish of my heart. David says, and a lament to God says, God, sin is burdensome. John says in 1 John 5, 3, that the commands of the Lord are not burdensome. We would do well to remember that God never calls us to do anything that is a burden. 
Now, does that mean it's going to not feel like a burden at times? No. We may say, Lord, this, this feels like a burden. Well, if holy God's called you to do it, is it really a burden? The Word of God's true and trustworthy without any mixture of error for its content. So when the Bible says that the commands of the Lord are not burdensome, guess what? The commands of the Lord are not burdensome, but sin is burdensome. The conviction of God is a good thing. And understand, when we, when we encounter holy God in his majesty and in his splendor and in his greatness, and look, I just finished reading through the Psalms in my quiet time. Let me tell you something. If you want a picture of God's awesomeness, read through the Psalms from Psalm 1 to Psalm uh, 150. Oh my goodness. Time and time again, the psalmist says, God, I don't understand. God, I'm broken over sin, but God, look at your greatness. Isaiah in Isaiah 6 is confronted with the holiness of God. And what does he say in Isaiah 6, 5? He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I am a people of unclean lips. Isaiah says, I'm in trouble. Isaiah says, I got sin in my life, and I live among a bunch of sinners. He says, woe is me. And that is the right response when we are confronted with sin in our life. But understand this, God never convicts us of sin and leaves us to wallow in self-pity. And in mourning and in heartbreak, he never does that. The entire point of the gospel is, hey, you can't achieve righteousness on your own. Somebody has to achieve it for you. You need Jesus. The whole point of the gospel is the righteousness that you're seeking through your own works is only found in the risen Lord Jesus. And so not only do we find conviction in the presence of God, we also find counsel in the presence of God. We find counsel in the presence of God. Now understand, when we start talking about the presence of God and the counsel that we find, it is important to remember that God's counsel is always right, it is always true, it is always trustworthy, it is never not right. Now when we think about people receiving counsel in the Bible, we can think automatically of Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. I mean literally, he receives 10 pieces of counsel. We call them the Ten Commandments. He brings them back and the people have already broken just about every commandment before they even got them. But understand in Psalm 33, 11, the Bible tells us about God's commandments, that the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. We are a short-sighted people. We are a short-sighted people. We forget that life is not just the here and now. We forget that God, and now everybody listen, everybody listen to me, nobody misquote me, nobody go and say I said something I didn't. God is not interested in having a bunch of good disciples. God's interested in having a bunch of holy disciples. 
there's a difference. God is not interested in having a bunch of good, morally thoughtful disciples. He's interested in having holy disciples who agree with the Lord about the sin in their life, who confess their sin to the Lord and say, yes, Lord, I confess my sin, and I know that you were faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. God wants us to be holy. And as we pursue holiness, yes, these other things come. Yes, we do become good people, but God is first and foremost concerned about his people being holy. That's tough. And by the way, if you're sitting there thinking, uh, Brother Craig, you're making me real uncomfortable. I've been living with this for a week and a half. I understand. The counsel of the Lord is always true and right, which means when he convicts us of sin, when he says there's stuff in your life that shouldn't be, guess what? God is right in saying that. There is no justification for it. There's none. So what does he counsel us in? Well, number one, he counsels us in how to be disciples. Sometimes following Jesus can be a difficult task. I mean, my word, Jesus said, and we're going to look at it just in, in the next point, but Jesus says in Mark 8, 34, he says, if anybody wants to follow after me, first, he must first deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus went to Golgotha. He went to be crucified, and he told his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. That's where I'm headed. It's your cross. Come on. So he counsels us on how to be disciples. He counsels us in how to be husbands and how to be wives and how to be fathers and mothers and children and how to be neighbors. How to be neighbors. What's the second commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. Remember? First one is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. He tells us how to be good neighbors. And let's be honest, some neighbors are more difficult to love than others. That's just the truth. Some, some of your coworkers are more difficult to love than others. Employers, some of your employees are real difficult to love. I was in management for two and a half years. I had those employees. I would pray for them if they were on my shift. He tells us how to be neighbors, disciples, fathers, mothers, brothers and sisters, disciples. He counsels us in every aspect of life through his word. Men, he tells you how to be a better man. Women, he tells you how to be a better woman. In Psalm 32, 8, the Bible tells us, and this is, these are the words of God, I will instruct you and I will show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give you counsel. I'll give you counsel. I'm going to show you what you ought to do. I'm going to tell you how you ought to do it. And I'm watching. God's watching. If you're a student, be it in high school or junior high or whatever, or college, God's watching when you take that exam. If you didn't study, take the grade that you're going to get. If you're an employer, God's watching how you treat your employees. 
If you're an employee, God's watching how you treat your employer and the customers you serve. He's watching. That can be a scary thing sometimes. Because truth is, we all do things that we don't want nobody to know about. God knows. And God convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We're going to look at that more. So here's the big question. How do we receive God's counsel? I mean, I'm talking about we receive counsel in the presence of God. Well, how do we receive it? Well, we receive it through his word. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. The Bible tells us that all scripture. Hey, students, what does all mean? All. That's right. All means all. All scripture, all 66 books of the Bible is inspired by God and it is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So as we encounter God through his word, we are counseled in what to do. You know, Proverbs says that where words are many, sin is not absent. The implication of that is, it's best not to do a lot of talking because you might just get into some sin. James tells us that we should be uh, slow to speak, slow to become angry, but quick to listen. Right? You know, if you read through the book of Proverbs or if you just read through any book of the Bible, you're going to find principles that you can apply to your day-to-day life that will greatly help you in being a disciple first and foremost and in pursuing God. And know that God will never lead you to do anything that is contrary to his word. Henry Blackaby, uh, who uh, is the one that wrote the Bible study that some of you may be aware of, uh, Experiencing God. It's an older Bible study, but it is a good Bible study. He wrote that God speaks by the Holy Spirit through the Bible, prayer, circumstances, and the church to reveal himself, his ways, and his purposes. Listen, God has spoken through his word. We don't want to be that person in our quiet time saying, Lord, I just really need you to speak to me because I don't know what to do here. When you've got your Bible on your coffee table closed and it's collecting dust, God's already spoken through his word. Pick it up and read. I know that sounds a little harsh, but it's the truth of the matter. Read the word. Jesus says in John 15, 5, uh, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. How do you abide in Christ? You read his word. You read the Bible. Now understand this about the Bible. Do not stop with the Bible. Now is the Bible totally true and trustworthy and all sufficient? Yes. But the Bible was never meant to replace God. And a lot of times we do that. This is what A.W. Tozer said. One important point many fail to understand is that the Bible was never meant to replace God. Rather, it was meant to lead us into the heart of God. Too many Christians stop with the text and never go on to experience the presence of God. Yesterday morning, I got up, did my quiet time, drank my coffee, had some projects I needed to do yesterday, and so I went and got dressed and uh, went to Home Depot because I needed some things from Home Depot. And as I'm pulling into Home Depot, the Lord said, you rushed out of my presence this morning. You're right. 
Allow God to move you into his presence as you read his word. He will speak to you. He will encourage you. He will comfort you. He will convict you through it. He will teach you through it. And he's the best teacher there's ever been. He's the best teacher there's ever been. Not only do we find conviction and counsel, we find comfort. We find comfort. In Mark 8, 34, Jesus says, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him first deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I call this the disciple's journey. It's not a term original to me. In fact, it was one of my professors in seminary. He will sign off on his emails on the journey. And one day we asked him about it. We said, Dr. Strong, why did you do that? He says, because I'm walking the disciple's journey. And I'm on it every day. In fact, Mark 8, 34, and it's uh, mirrored verses in the other Gospels are some of the most uncomfortable things I've read in the Bible. I mean, Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, hey, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. A cross only has one purpose, and it is to crucify. Jesus says, got to be crucified. Paul says that in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ. It's not me living anymore. That's why whenever you're persecuted for uh, following Jesus, what can they really do to you? I mean, honestly. You've already been crucified. The words of my evangelism professor, if you get killed for taking a stand for Christ, they just gave you a one-way ticket home. Take the stand. But we find comfort because the truth is walking the disciples' journey is an uncomfortable journey. That's what I love about speaking to our more experienced adults. I don't call them senior adults. They're just more experienced adults. Because if you hang around them long enough, you find out they don't act like senior adults. My aunt's one of them. She's about to be... uh, well, I'm not going to tell her age, though she wouldn't mind, but, uh, but she is in her later 70s, and she acts like she's 40. And we get on to her about that regularly. But I love speaking to those more experienced adults and hearing their stories of faith and how they have seen God work, because hearing those things reminds those of us who are not as far along on the journey that, hey, it's possible. When you begin college, you will often hear professors say, It's possible to graduate, we promise. We saw some of them graduate last semester. It's possible, keep going. The disciples' journey is a hard one. It is often marked with pain and suffering. The Gospel of Mark is all about the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. If he suffered, it is a reasonable thing to expect that we're going to suffer for following Jesus. And again, because we're a short-sighted people and we forget that we're not living just for the here and now, we're living with eternity in mind. Sometimes we have to be comforted and we have to be reminded 
I've got it. I've got it. There's no need for you to worry. In the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 16, Jesus is headed to the cross. And starting in verse 7 of John 16, going down through verse 13, the Lord Jesus says, Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, right, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Listen to that, because the ruler of this world has been judged. God's already won. Verse 12, I still have many things to tell you, Jesus said, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Henry Blackaby also says that truth has a name and his name is Jesus. The Holy Spirit will always point us back to Jesus. For he will not come and speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. The Greek there for counselor is a word uh, in the Greek called parakletos. Literally translated, it means encourager. Now, there are different ways we can translate it, but by and large in John 16, we, we, we settle with comforter. It fits better that way. And that's what we need. We need the comfort God provides. The Holy Spirit is with us, in us, and upon us, helping us to obey the things that God has called us to. By the way, he's also continuing to help us work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. Philippians 1, 6, uh, 6 says that, who, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit is continuing to work on us. We're not a finished product yet. The truth is, we deal with sin every day. We're not done. God's still working on us. And in this particular passage, Jesus reminds us that we have been saved and called with a holy calling, to quote Paul in the Timothy letters. And he's also reminding us that, hey, though you're going to face difficulty and hardship in this life, I'm going to comfort you. I've already won. I mean, listen, he says, the ruler of this world has been judged. Verse 11, it's done. Jesus has won the battle. And Paul also understood that God is faithful to comfort us. Paul's faithful. Uh, God, well, Paul was faithful in his calling, but God is faithful to comfort us. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3, 3 through 4. Paul writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. 
He comforts us in all, of our, in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are, in, who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort that we ourselves received. God is faithful to comfort us. Now, here's the big question. If you're following Jesus, you're going to experience conviction. You're going to experience counsel, and you're going to experience his comfort. But if you're not, and you claim to follow Jesus, could it be that you haven't been reading your Bible? Could it be that you haven't been reading your Bible? Could it be that you have not been praying? If you're a child of God, that's how he's going to convict you. He's going to convict you as you read his word. As you commune with him in fellowship and in prayer. The faithfulness of God to comfort us is tremendous. The faithfulness to convict us and to counsel us is tremendous. I've been thinking since Friday morning about how to wrap this up. And if I may, and if you cry easy, you might just want to go ahead and get your tissues ready. I want to share with you a very personal story. I want you to imagine with me, and, and this is real story. I want you to imagine little boy Craig. He likes video games. He loves his multiplication tables. He really loves those fives. I mean, he loves them. He loves raising chickens. He loves going to school. He loves dogs. He can't wait to be in 4-H because his granddaddy is the 4-H agent. Works for the Ag Center. He can't wait. Have you pictured him? I don't remember what happened, but I was reminded this Friday of little boy Craig sitting on the back porch and he's crying and he's saying to himself nobody loves me nobody likes me I'd have been better off never having been born he's hurt he is alone He's heartbroken. Now, he can't tell you those things. He doesn't even know how to put those words together in a sentence yet. But he's sitting on the back porch. And he's crying and he's saying these things. I wonder where God was at. A couple years ago, I began to ask that question. Where was God at in all my pain? And a friend of mine looked at me and said, can I tell you where God was at, Craig? I said, please do, because I would love to know. And he said, God was at work in the background, revealing to you your need for him.
so that one day when you encountered his grace, his mercy, and his love, you would respond to him and receive all that he has to offer. Now I wonder, just between me, you, and God, is there anybody in here that I, don't raise your hand by the way, let, let, let me put that disclaimer out there. But maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, I feel like that spiritually. I feel like nobody loves me, nobody cares for me. i have been better off never having been born. I don't understand the pain in my life. I don't understand the suffering. I don't understand any of it. Listen to me, friend. Here is my plea to you. I want you to look up to the all-victorious, all-conquering king who was and is and is to come, who has loved us with an everlasting love, who has said, I want to save you. I want you to know me. I want to make you into a new creation. Will you look to him and say, Lord Jesus, you've loved me. You have loved me so much that you have died for me while I was an enemy. And if you've never trusted Jesus, you say, God, save me. If you haven't trusted Jesus yet, and you're sitting there and you're saying, where's he been at? He's been at work in the background revealing to you your need for him. And if you do know Jesus, I beg you, to live with the reality that you are always in his presence. So parents, as you're trying to figure out how do I rear my children, how, how, how do I explain to them that what they just did is sin and was wrong and they shouldn't do, you're in the presence of God, you can call out to him and say, God, give me wisdom. Employers, as you're trying to figure out how to best serve your employees, God will give you wisdom. As you're experiencing heartbreak and loneliness and despair, God is there comforting you. Look to him. And so as our praise team comes this morning, will you stand with me and pray? Father, we thank you that you are ever present with us, that you love us, that you have saved us, that you have called us, with a holy calling, and that not in and of ourselves, but because of your good grace and your good purposes. And God, we recognize that we're always in your presence. You knew we were going to be here before we knew we were going to be here. You were already in this room before we showed up, and you came with us here. And you convict us, Lord, of sin and righteousness and judgment. You counsel us and how to repent and turn to you and, and how to love you and how to serve you and just how to be your people. And you comfort us when we lose sight of eternity. And so right now, Lord Jesus, I pray that God the Holy Spirit would be at work in the hearts and minds of each of us. Number one, convicting us and God, that's, that's a scary thing to pray, God, but I pray that you would first and foremost convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment in order that we might repent and turn back to you. 
God, when you do, may we not justify it. May we not argue. May we just say, yes, Lord, you're right. This is sin. We confess it. We agree with you. And may we repent of it. And God, if there's anybody in here who says, I'm lonely and I don't understand the pain and I don't understand all that's going on. And, and God, I don't know you. God, I pray that they would, they would respond to you in faith if you have been working in their heart and mind today. For God, we know that we can only understand the gospel as you as you empower us. And so, God, I pray that you'd be at work in our hearts and minds. And for those of us who are following you, God, I pray that whatever it is you have to do, that you would do. Convict us, draw us near, draw us back to your word and thereby back to your heart. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And if you're in here today and you've never trusted Jesus, we would love to talk to you about following him. We'd love to talk to you about what that means. If you're in here and you're thinking about joining East Haven, we'd love to talk with you about that too. If you need to pray with someone about anything, we're here to pray with you. The altar is open. The invitation is simple for everybody. Come to Jesus and do as the Spirit leads this morning.